Ever wonder what psychologist moms talk about when we get together? Whether we're consulting one another about a challenging case or one of our own kids, or just leaning on each other when parenting feels hard, because trust me, even when we do this for a living, it's still hard. Joining me each week in these special Thursday shows are two of my closest friends, both moms, both psychologists. They're the people I call when I need a sounding board. These are our unfiltered answers to your parenting questions. We're letting you in on the conversations the three of us usually have behind closed doors. This is Securely Attached, Beyond the Sessions. Hi, everybody. Dr. Emily Upshur, Dr. Rebecca Hirschberg, welcome back. Thank you. Always so awesome to be here. So great to see you guys. Okay, let's dive in because I got a DM from a listener to the podcast, and this is what they said. He said, hi, Dr. Sarah, the biggest issue that's going on in my house is that my five-year-old just doesn't listen. We stick blueberries in the freezer and her favorite thing to do is stuff her face with these blueberries all day long. She even climbed up on the counter herself and got into the freezer. We don't care so much about that, except that she leaves a trail behind her and I have a one-year-old who's finding them and putting them in his mouth. And that's obviously a choking hazard. So I know we need to make that a hard line, But when I don't have a consequence that goes along with it, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I say, no, you can't do that. And then she does it. And then I'm like, well, I don't know how to address this because I know this is a hard no, but I don't know how to discipline or stop it in the future. Does that make sense? Any tips you can give me? So I think this is such a great question. What are the consequences when our child doesn't listen, when it's a matter of safety and yet not going too far to like remove all autonomy for your five-year-old that they're craving and also having developmentally realistic expectations of a five-year-old. So there's a lot here. Emily, where would you start with this question? Yeah, this is a tricky one There's because it's really rich and full, filled with a lot of areas of intervention, I think. I, I mean, I think my start would be the thing that actually the thing that wrong true to me the most. And this was when mom said, I don't really care that she does this. Right. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, so that makes it really hard to have a consequence or, uh, even just a verbalization of don't do that. If kids are very perceptive, they're probably like, they don't really care. (laughs) You know, like I'm hearing that mom isn't fully sold on this. So I guess my first, um, my first instinct is to sort of get a little bit for the mom to get just a little bit clearer on that part you know, like, and Mm -hmm. deliver that message with a little bit more intentionality. Um, just, you know, because the five-year-old isn't going to understand all of the, this isn't safe. And, you know, like all, like all of the rationalization, the other thing would be, you know, to make, to make it a safe barrier, you know, like you could put a lock on your freezer, you could, you know, you know, try to be mindful. Supervision is obviously, you know, the first step. But I think starting there is, is like with getting clear on like, do I really, like how hard of a line do I want to draw about this is probably the first place I would go. Yeah. And even just real quick, like one of the things you said made me think like a lot of parents, like my five-year-old does understand it's dangerous. I can teach them that it's dangerous. Like, yes, you can. And cognitively, they're probably at a level where they do understand that blueberries aren't safe for a one-year-old and like that's dangerous. Conceptually, they can grasp that. But what I think is really key when we're talking about developmentally appropriate expectations is understanding the difference between a five-year-old's ability to comprehend something 
and a five-year-old's ability to inhibit an impulse. Because those two things might be in direct conflict with one another. My (laughs) five-year-old might intellectually understand that blueberries aren't safe for his brother or her brother to like have access to. Um, But when I want a blueberry and it's frozen and it's delicious and I want it right now and I'm just, that's all I'm thinking about because I'm five and I'm going to just do whatever I need to do to get that thing that I want. I'm not my, I get like blinders on like really narrow vision. And so I think that's also like the tricky part is also understanding kind of our child's developmental level of like, yeah, yeah, they can understand that it's not safe. And you could spend a lot of time lecturing them about how unsafe it is. It's probably still not always going to stop the behavior because they don't have the inhibition skills. So I actually think it's more also about helping build up inhibition skills, pausing. And parents get stuck on that a lot because they'll say, not only will they lecture their kid, but they'll have their kid repeat it back. Mm -hmm. Like your kid is like, it's not safe because Joey could choke and and we might have to go to the hospital and because he won't be able to breathe. And then like four minutes later, you see them dropping blueberries all over the floor. (laughs) Parents like go ballistic. They're like, I'm raising a budding sociopath. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She told me her brother might have to go to the hospital. Is this about like hating her sibling? Is this about, and instead, you know, I always do exactly what you just did is explain the disparities between the different areas of the brain and how they develop. And especially with five-year-olds, they can be so precocious in their language, both expressive and receptive, but that has nothing on, you know, the prefrontal cortex in terms of judgment and impulse control. Um, I, it's funny, Emily, I heard exactly what you heard, which was the mom's a little bit wishy-washiness. And also that led me to feel like, what what's the problem here? The problem is not actually... It sounds like that she's going into the freezer and getting the blueberries. The problem is that she's accidentally dropping them on the floor because she leaves a trail. And so I would just wonder, and again, I know I'm potentially in the weeds. I still think we can talk about what do you do when a kid doesn't listen to in other scenarios? But this to me is like, well, what is the rule? Can we create a rule that's much more like when you get the blueberries, you eat them in a bowl at the table mm-hmm. and then when you're done, you look under the table and make sure there are no blueberries. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you have a one-year-old in the house who is free reign, which is great, someone's got to be walking around and just being aware that they're not little things on the floor because it might be the blueberries, but it might be that she leaves out a Lego. And it might be, I mean, your five-year-old is going to leave things out that your one-year-old can't have. Mm -hmm. I love that you said that. Yeah. So it's so sort of like, what's the rule and what's the procedure and sort of helping her take more responsibility for that, you know, maybe because I was at first I was like, put the blueberries on a higher shelf. And now I'm kind of like, no, what if we make them more accessible? What if we take away the kind of alluring aspect if we're like, sure, knock yourself out. Here's the blueberries. They're in a drawer that you can reach and you can have them and you have to eat them at the table. And when you're done, you need to look to see if any have fallen on the floor. And I will remind you of that as the grown-up. And in the back of my head, I will always be also looking for blueberries because the goal is that she start to understand that she's also responsible for some of these things, but again, in a developmentally appropriate way. Right. And like, even to just expand on that, before I then take us back to the general idea of like consequences, is like another realistic expectation for this parent is if I'm going to create a new plan, a new rule, I also have to have a developmentally appropriate expectation for my child to have to have some scaffolding to learn that rule. So yes, I'm going to make the blueberries more accessible. Yes, I'm going to have 
I've identified the actual core problem here, which is the blueberries are getting dropped on the floor, right? Not that they're going to the freezer. But then the solution then is to make the blueberries accessible and teach my child how to eat them safely. I'm going to have to be with my child and teach them and support them for a while before I can expect them to just be able to do that by themselves because it's a new thing. It's a new expectation. It's a new task. That doesn't mean you have to like, you know, do this for months, but like for the first two or three or four times that you introduce them to this new plan of eating blueberries in a bowl at the table and then checking, you're going to have to do it with them and practice. And then you can start to pull back gradually. But I think parents sometimes don't always, again, because I think they go to that place of like, my kid gets it. They know how to do this. And yes, they do. But we're actually not working on comprehension. We're working on inhibition of impulse and following a, you know, following an order, like a sequencing, right? These are executive functions. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was going to say. I think it's like you're trying, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out what a developmentally appropriate habit is, right? And I think that that's sort of the thing I loved about what you said, Rebecca. It's like, you know, sitting at the table and cleaning up the blueberries afterwards is a very developmentally appropriate goal, to Sarah's point, for a five-year-old. Are you going to? It's like it's like with pleases and thank yous. You're going to have to you're going to have to remind your kid to say them a lot before it becomes internalized, but at least then you have a system. And I think that's an appropriate level of responsibility for that age range. Right. And so like, it's funny because there's sort of this parallel thing happening here, um, which I see a lot. Cause like I do this work, <laughs> this funny, cause this story reminds me of one that a parent in my group, I run like a parenting group for two to seven year olds. And like, there was a parent in this group that was having a similar situation where like the daughter was the older daughter was like doing these things that were technically like they weren't supposed to do them. Um, but the real reason that they weren't supposed to do that, this kid wasn't supposed to do these things because it was making it unsafe for the baby. Mm-hmm. Not because the parents really had any problem with the behavior the child was engaging in. And so we were, the, you know, the, the initial thought in the parent is like, I told them they can't do this. I've set this limit. They're doing it anyway. Now what's the consequence? Because we're really focused on if you do an unwanted behavior, my goal as a parent is to extinguish that behavior. And one of the best ways to extinguish a behavior is through punishment or even, you know, we think of the word punishment nowadays as like this really harsh punitive punishment, but really punishment from like a behaviorism level just means a removal of a positive stimulus or an addition of a negative stimulus in an effort to reduce a behavior a consequence is a punishment if you're using that definition even a natural consequence is a punishment if you're you know if you're thinking about that but i think we're i think the problem is we're asking the wrong question to begin with and that i think is why when we were asked this question about the blueberries all of us were like completely didn't answer the question about consequences because we went straight to oh let's reframe the question to actually get to the answer we that's going to result in a change in the behavior or change in the problem. But I think this is the problem with a lot of parenting, like infrastructure, right? Like there's so many systems in our society that, that tell parents explicitly and implicitly, you are responsible for your child's good behavior. And if they are 
quote, misbehaving, you are failing unless you give them some sort of consequence that changes that behavior. And it better be changed by the next time. Otherwise, you're definitely failing as a parent. And that's like impossible for parents to live up to that expectation. Although it's interesting because, Sarah, I also think the the contrasting voice that's out there a lot right now is there's never a time for consequences. And so I think parents are are, are feeling com- conflicted. And I was saying when um, <clears throat> I was thinking to myself when you were reading the question, like the way that she phrased it was like, I may have read into this. I don't know if this is how she meant it, but what I heard was like, don't worry, I'm not giving a consequence, you know, mm-hmm. what do I do? You know, and it's sort of like in this particular scenario, I think we all did exactly what you said, which is we shifted the question and this is not a time for a consequence. I don't think a consequence would work because of the stage of brain development, because of the goal of changing the behavior. There are times where consequences are tremendously effective and there are decades of research showing that. Again, I think parents have been told that that's just a hundred percent off the table. And so there's a fear of that um, at the same time as they might be hearing from perhaps older generations, what's wrong with you, your kid keeps misbehaving, give a consequence. So I think parents right now are frankly pretty confused. The good news is that I think what we just did without even thinking about it, which is kind of reframing the question is more often than not going to land in a place that everyone will feel comfortable with and where you'll actually see positive results. However, I don't think it takes away that confusion that a lot of parents are feeling. And I I I would gander to say that like sitting at the table and looking for your blueberries afterwards is sort of a consequence, right? Like it is sort of like a containing the behavior, but it has a little bit more internal change. I think the thing that we're always looking for is like, how do we not stop the behavior right then in the moment? How do we sort of instill a child to look for a better solution themselves? And I think, or to have a more internal sense of boundaries and responsibility and basically, you know, a participant in society in a helpful way. So I think where we always get go as, you know, as professionals, as moms and as psychologists is, I don't, you know, I want to stop the behavior, not necessarily right then and there. I want to teach something more important and something longer lasting. And I think that's sort of where, where we went with that solution, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's so, so true. And I think Rebecca, to your point, neither of the messages that parents are getting, if you're, you know, if, if we're assuming the messages are either, why are you not punishing this child for being so bad? Where is your sense of discipline, you permissive parent? And simultaneously, how could you possibly give a consequence to a child? They're this, they're, they are equal and they are autonomous and this, you know, this is not, you know, fair or equitable or, you know, it's going to damage your relationship with your child. Those are so extreme on either ends of the spectrum. And I think we often get that in our society today. There's a lot of that polarizing, black and white, binary thinking. And it really misses this beautiful space in the middle where like both of these things can exist. You can have consequences and you can have respect for your child's autonomy. You can see them with, you know, a lot of respect and equity in the in the family system. But equity is not the same as like we're peers and I don't have a role in being this this leader, this authoritative, confident parent who is a container 
who has a job that requires that I am in charge and I can keep you safe and keep you clean and keep you healthy, move you through the schedule of the day, make hard decisions. Like those are the some of the five jobs I always kind of remind parents. Like if it's in one of those domains, you have to hold that boundary sometimes. And you have to be confident that you are doing a good thing for your child by by doing it. You don't have to scream at them or shame them in order to do fulfill that job though. Yeah. And I think, again, I think knowledge of, of what's going on for a five-year-old, for a five-year-old and your five-year-old, right? I mean, when we all do, you know, the three of us all do individual consultations or groups or whatever around these issues all the time. And it's sort of like, well, let's understand know, before we sort of go anywhere, as you said, what's the brain development of a five-year-old? Also, what's the motivation of a five-year-old? What does a five-year-old want? A five-year-old wants autonomy. A five-year-old wants to um, test limits. So this five-year-old may be doing this more (laughs) because there's a limit. And that's where the, what Emily said comes in, which is, you know, okay, so then is this a limit that I really need to toe the line on? Or is this a limit that is, might be better off if we don't set that as the limit and we set something else as the limit, where does the role of my attention come in? You know, am I paying constant attention to the one-year-old or if there isn't a one-year-old, I'm on my phone trying to do work until my child gets up on the counter to get the blueberries. And then suddenly I'm involved and she's pulled me in. I mean, there are so many things to think about if, and and that's why kind of one of the very first things I, I talk about with parents is what can we try to start learning what we call reflective functioning or seeing the world through our child's eyes. What's going on for them? Um, because once we do that, we realize they're not us. They're seeing this completely differently from a completely different perspective. And then that helps guide um, how we want to proceed. Yeah. And that makes me think of another really challenging issue that I think parents face today, which is the constant like cookie cutter rules and scripts and things like that. Like when this happens, you say this, when this happens, you say this. And the problem with that is like in a, you know, a singular scenario, maybe that's the right thing to say. And so someone's teaching someone else to say that, but every single situation that you find yourself in, 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 as a parent with your child is completely novel. It is completely different because you bring something to that interaction. Your child brings something to that interaction. The time of day brings something to that interaction. How well we all slept last night brings something to that interaction. You know, what's happening around in our lives right now brings something to that interaction. And so when we have these like sound bites all the time or these scripts or these rules, and, you know, I do think they're useful but I think what parents sometimes don't get support around is like, yeah, they, they're people are teaching them the, the sort of quote right things to say or quote right things to do, but they're not really getting support around how do I individualize this to my child and build my skills around reading them all the other stuff that I have to factor into the decision in this moment of like what's most important here today now. It's like a a chain analysis from DBT, which is what I mentioned in my, in my book and the introduction of my book. I just, and I'm not one to be like, la 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 my book, but this is so in keeping with that. I talk about sort of the classic tantrum and this was, you know, pre COVID of being in the candy aisle with your child at the supermarket 
And the child is screaming and yelling for a candy bar. And it's sort of a typical tantrum and you walk by and you're observing. Okay. And every person I know who loves to jump to judgment is like, well, I know what I would do or I know what I would do. You know, and then what if I told you that the kid actually hadn't slept all night, you know, and had a fever? Like, would that change your response? And then what if I told you the kid um, is actually their first time leaving the house because there was a new baby born? You know, and then what if I told you that mom actually has a history of an eating disorder? And so she gets actually pretty anxious in the candy aisle herself. Like there's so many things, you know, and you could go on and on and on and on mm -hmm. the circles. And again, you can't as a parent measure that, every, you know, it's not like, oh, I need to think about that on a conscious level, but it really is practice. You can build that skill. And the skill to my mind, the most important skill is, can you pause? And that's why we talk about that. And I know you talk about that a lot too. Instead of just reacting in the moment, can you pause for just a second to just do a quick scan of like, what's happening here? Um, you know, where's this coming from? What, again, like what's going on with sleeping? What's going on with eating? What's going on with sibling relationships? What's going on with my mood as a parent? Like what, you know, and then that guides your, your plan and not sort of a set script for what do you do when your child's in the candy aisle screaming for a chocolate bar? Because- you could show me a thousand different kids doing that for a thousand different reasons and how I would respond would vary. Yeah. 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 I love that because I, because I also think when you model that reflective functioning, you'll be surprised that your kid might model it back to you, right? Like it's mm -hmm. this, it's a reciprocal system to your point, Rebecca, about sort of like the dyad or, you know, in the DBT model, like it's a relationship. And I think the more we're able to, and I think that is the human side of it. We can still like treat our children like other humans that, you know, have responses, but we're, we're using that reflective functioning lens at all times. And, and that just does get imbued in our children. You know, and, and even just approaching it that way will help this child sort of understand their experience in a more effective way. Yeah, I think that is so, so, so helpful. And I hope that people who are listening to this who maybe, you know, clicked on this episode because they were like, oh, good, I'm going to get another really useful way to give a consequence I hope that you're listening to this and not feeling like, oh man, I didn't get the thing I was looking for because I really think it's so important to give ourselves permission to like maybe maybe take a look at what we think we're supposed to be doing and be willing to sort of completely reframe our orientation and see if there's something else that actually is my new intention in this moment. If my new intention in this moment is to understand why my child might be behaving in this way and be curious about that behavior and use that information you gain from that reflecting to determine how to support kind of moving towards the actual outcome we're really trying to get to, which is, hey, in this case, safety for the kids in the house, right? Safety for the baby. A little bit more awareness in the daughter. That I think is more of a useful line of thinking than they did this thing. Now, what am I supposed to do about this thing they did? And so that's the reframe I think we really want to help people get to. And it doesn't mean there are never, there's not a time and space for consequences. And maybe we can do another episode on like, okay, let's give a scenario where like, this is an appropriate time to actually create a consequence and like, to Emily's point, like perhaps moving to the table is the consequence, but I'm thinking in terms of like 
if you don't do this, this is what will happen. And this is how we will implement the thing that we said we're going to do. You know, that's important too. But I think before you go there, just like you said, Rebecca, pause, reflect, be willing to sort of shift the entire orientation of your questioning and see if then perhaps you don't even need to ask the question, what's the consequence? Sounds great. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. And we'll see you again really soon. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) See ya. Thank you so much for listening. As you can hear, parenting is not one size fits all. It's nuanced and it's complicated. So I really hope that this series where we're answering your questions really helps you to cut through some of the noise and find out what works best for you and your unique child. If you have a burning parenting question, something you're struggling to navigate, or a topic you really want us to shed light on or share research about, we want to know. Go to drsarahbrennan.com forward slash question to send in anything that you want Rebecca, Emily, and me to answer in this new series, Securely Attached Beyond the Sessions. That's drsarahbrennan.com forward slash question. And check back for a brand new Securely Attached next Tuesday. And until then, don't be a stranger.